Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. If you're the type of business owner that likes to use data and market intelligence to make decisions, then you're going to enjoy hearing from my next guest. Peter Fader is a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and his expertise is around the analysis of behavioral data and consumer decision making. In other words, his company is able to look at all of your customers' buying data and accurately predict future purchasing decisions. Pretty cool. Now, There's a lot I like about Peter. He's clearly a very smart guy with a curious mind. But Peter's also managed to succeed where many academics have failed, and that is the ability to take your theories and commercialize them. His research went beyond the spreadsheets and into the real world. In fact, his business was so successful that it was eventually sold to Nike. Now, what really interests me about Peter is how his team have been able to apply their IP to business valuations. But beyond this, Peter shares a bunch of other insights, and I know you're going to enjoy the show. This is Peter Fader. Peter Fader, welcome to the show. Great to talk to you. I'm really interested and excited to have you on the show today. I, having read a bit of your background, um, you know, I know you're doing a lot of work and really interesting stuff around um, understanding customers and how it, 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 well, its implications for business values. So. Before we get into all that, um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to ultimately sort of starting and selling your business, Zodiac. Sure thing. So I've been a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania for uh, 30-something years. Uh, That's that's an awful long time for someone to be doing the same thing, especially in an entrepreneurial type space. Uh, but, it, but it is very entrepreneurial in that we get to work on different kinds of projects, uh, you know, different kinds of, of business settings, different kinds of mathematical approaches. So kind of keeps me busy. Uh, and I, I really the theme, a lot of my research has been forecasting customer behavior. You know, who's going to do what, when, for how long, for how much money, and what kind of company policies do we want to develop around it? I'm a quintessential academic publish or perish, love teaching the undergrads and MBAs, like to make my research practical, but really never thought in a million years that there'd be, you know, legitimate big time commercial value in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. And, um, and so how did you get around to the, the starting of the business Zodiac? I mean, how, how did that sort of form? 
A couple of different factors. Uh, and in hindsight, they, they seem coherent, but at the time they were coming, they were, they were pretty disconnected. So uh, part of it was just the research itself, the developing some of these forecasting models, some of which is math that I came up with, some of which was kind of uh, mathematical approaches I borrowed from others and put some, some tweaking on. Uh, and so some of the models are just really good. Uh, and like, wow, this stuff it really, really works. It's really practical. It can predict customer buying behavior over long horizons and with great accuracy. So part of it was like, is, is a hammer looking for nails? That's number one. Number two, as they started to think more carefully about this hammer and saying, so what are its implications for business? Uh, it troubled me that very few companies out there are operating their businesses around the kinds of patterns that we were seeing. So what I started to do is to, to write some books. I've been, been writing all these books on customer centricity, focus on the right customers for strategic advantage of a, a bunch of these things. Third one coming out soon. Maybe talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, just to try to get people to appreciate less about the models per se and more about the so what. And that was great. And those have, have taken off quite well. But still, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't get him to drink. And then factor number three was, was connecting with a couple of brilliant students, uh, in particular, my PhD student, Dan McCarthy, uh, who not only uh, embraced all the models, but helped raise them to even higher levels, both of, of statistical performance and managerial uh, meaningfulness. Uh, and it became irresistible for, for us and a couple of other folks to, to actually build a company around this stuff. Instead of just talking about it, instead of just saying, here's some code, here's some spreadsheets, here's some case studies, here's some videos, go figure it out yourself. Uh, realizing that no one really could implement it at quite the same scale or effectiveness that we could. So in 2015, we got company number one, Zodiac, off the ground to try to bring customer lifetime value to life at full commercial scale. Uh, and it, it's just super fun. Yeah, wow, that's that's cool. And and did did Zodiac uh, and and I guess the data you're using does it lend itself more to certain industries over others? Sure. Uh, it, it basically, we required customer transaction data. So, so primarily, you think about something like e-commerce, where it's real easy to tag and track individual customers. Uh, and, and, and that would be kind of the, the, the primary way of thinking about it. But by no means is it or was it limited just to e-commerce and other kind of you know, easily trackable retailing. Uh, we did lots of projects in uh, hospitality and travel, uh, a, a bunch in pharmaceuticals, uh, gaming, telcos, a, a, a wide variety of different companies that, again, had the ability to see who was doing what uh, and, and, and asking uh, not only what will they do next, but how do we build our business around those predictions. So it was actually very gratifying to see the, the breadth of companies and then running basically the same set of models. And, and, and for me personally, again, primarily as an academic, doing this stuff you know, primarily in an ivory tower way to say, oh my gosh, it works here, it works there, wow. Uh, so it really was, it, when I say it was fun, I, I really meant it. Not only getting a business off the ground and playing the game with funding and hiring and publicity, uh, but, but really uh, celebrating the models each and every time, pinching myself uh, and, and, and really wanting to kind of uh, uh, lean in, uh, make things better and think about even broader applications. 
Yeah, that's cool. And, and and so out of interest, I mean, you start this this company. I mean, it's did did you have did you have any idea where it might go or that it might build into something that you'd ultimately sell? Like, was there an end game in mind, or was that just kind of a hey, let's just take this next step because it's part of the evolution? Superb question. It depends who you ask. So if you ask me, or maybe even Dan McCarthy, we're both academics, uh, probably. No, which is to say we weren't thinking that far ahead. And for me personally, this was my baby. This was my my podium, my megaphone. This was my chance to take all this academic stuff and, and shout it out to the world. So I truly had no exit strategy in mind. And in fact, when we started talking about things like that several years into the company, I was actually resistant. Because uh, we, we did take a, a, a bunch of, of, of venture money. We, we worked with some, some real great VC firms and had some, some wonderful advisors. Uh, and of course, they had different plans for them. It wasn't just about podium, megaphone. It was about making money. Uh, so I don't want to say it led to tension, but uh, it, I was kind of surprised uh, when we started entering that next phase about how, how, how quickly it went and about how um, little... My own personal, you know, uh, uh, gospel spreading motivations, uh, how, how little they made a difference in the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it goes to show, right? I mean, the different purpose or drivers for, for different stakeholders, you know, so important, to, I guess, understand that stuff. I mean, you, you had venture capital who are external parties. And I mean, I see, I see this sort of stuff with businesses where there's just multiple business owners, you know, and they've, they've, they've worked together and just never taken the time to sit down and say, well, where do you actually see this thing going, right? And, you know, they can find themselves 10, 20, 30 years down the track and suddenly going, we're in completely different headspaces now about what, what to do with this thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. But but I do want to say, we, we did have a, one of our co-founders, another a former a Penn student, was, was a CEO. So he, he kind of knew. He was doing just a great job of kind of balancing the kind of academic interests with the commercial ones. So when I when I say there was that kind of uh, you know attention oh not attention but that that kind of you know a, a different uh, objectives uh, that wasn't really for the business itself that was just for this you know this this one academic over here versus the folks who really saw the business as a business and they were right uh, so actually for me it was actually a great education to 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 try to strike that balance and again to find out in the end that we really do have a fiduciary responsibility to to you know make as much money as we can uh so so in in the end even though it was uh it it did create just a lot of kind of questions for me personally it was just a great thing to happen and a great thing for me personally to go through another learning experience yeah yeah, no, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I've done a couple of degrees, including an MBA, and I, I, lots of great ideas and people I've met and conversations we'd had. And uh, I, 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 and I don't want to generalize here too much, but I, one of my experiences or one of my thoughts through my education and going into business for myself was that a lot of people find it hard to jump from that academic theoretical side of what should work in business to actually making it work to doing it to putting you know whether they put their own money or raise capital whatever and turning it into a successful business and i'm how did you find that part of the journey oh there's no question about it. you know there's a, a, a first of all for a lot of academics the work they do i don't mean to be disrespectful but doesn't have that much commercial value to it but even in a case like myself where my work has been very practical since day one 
uh, the idea of going all the way to build a business around it is much more difficult than people think. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the basic IP uh, goes right back to, to the academic work, but the engineering that goes on around it, the, the kind of um, uh, customer success, the, just the financial aspects, there's a lot of moving parts there. So I've had a lot of academics come to me and say, hey, you know, how can I commercial my work? Uh, it's uh, e easier said than done. And once again, I, I'm just very fortunate. And this is not some kind of false humility thing. I mean it sincerely. Uh, to be surrounded by the right people who could really appreciate all the IP, but, but could do all of that stuff, you know, doing justice to the models, uh, but, but understanding the, the commercial demands uh, just much better than I ever could. And, and really, I, I get more credit than I deserve because so much of the, the IP is associated with me. Uh, but again, our, our CEO, Artem Marichin, uh, was just brilliant at knowing when it was time to you know, insert the, the gray-haired professor to help close a deal or to keep a client happy or to stand on a stage. And when it was time to say, you know what, just stay in your office in Philadelphia. We, we got this covered. Uh, and, and so it, he, he was just really good at, at knowing how to leverage myself. And, and of course, uh, my, our other co-founder, Dan McCarthy, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and so you guys kick it off. I mean, did you, did you get funding immediately? What was that process from going, okay, let's commercialize to actually getting paying customers? Like how long did that take? It was, it was actually amazing how, how quickly it happened. Uh, so again, part of it is the team, part of it is you know the, my personal brand, part of it is the genuine need for, for the, these kinds of models and, and analyses. So I was able to kind of tap into my network of, of industry partners, of, of alumni, of companies that were already reaching out, that were reading my books on customer centricity and saying, how do we do this? It was again, you know, getting the horse to water and giving him an opportunity to drink. So we were a pretty successful right out of the gate, both commercially and in, in VC terms, that we actually entered a lot of business plan competitions. It was kind of weird, uh, again, the old professor uh, competing with his MBA students for, for different pots of money and awards um, and being able to work with uh, companies like First Round Capital uh, and the great Josh Koppelman, uh, it, it helps the fact that he was one of my star undergraduates many years ago uh, and, and, and others too. Some of our other uh, investors and advisors were, were folks who I, who I knew at, uh, on that level. So we're able to open up doors pretty quickly and prove success uh, pretty dramatically. Uh, so, it was, uh, it, so a lot of the pain, a lot of the pivots, that folks have to go through. We really didn't experience much. Not to say it was all a bed of roses. There were definitely some, some dead ends and some changes and things. But the stuff we were doing, the stuff we ended up selling was, was, was pretty much identical to the stuff we, we, we started out with. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too. And, and, and your customers, um, well, based on what you were saying earlier, I presume they were larger customers because they've got enough data and, and things like that to, to, to be able to put into the model. Is, is that a fair comment? Uh, interesting variety. I mean, we, we did work with, with a number of, of, of Fortune 100 companies, and that was just great. Uh, but we worked with a number of, of smaller firms, uh, especially if you go back to e-commerce or easily trackable industries, where as long as they had enough, enough of a runway of data, uh, we wouldn't necessarily need all that much. So we were working with some, some let's say, you know, um, C round type companies 
so it really was, was quite a variety of size, quite a variety of, of, of sectors, quite a variety of, of problems that they were focusing on, mostly with a, a kind of a, a MarTech orientation. Which kinds of customers do you want to acquire? How do we evaluate this program we're running? So very much a, a marketing orientation, unlike the current company, which we'll talk about. Uh, but but and, and that made it even more fun to be working big and small, to be working domestic, international, to be working products and services. Uh, all of that was was very enjoyable and a lot of learning. Yeah, yeah, and and so obviously big and small companies, obviously different abilities to to, to pay and whatever else. I mean, what what was you, what was your model? Was was it were you doing simple projects, fixed fees, stuff like that, or was it something else? So we had a, a SaaS orientation right from day one. The objective wasn't only from a business standpoint, from a gospel spreading standpoint. My goal was to try to make these lifetime value models as accessible as possible and to try to give people, companies, as many reasons to run them. So, hey, let's run the model for these customers and then tomorrow let's run it for those. Now let's run it for this business and for that sector and, and, and so on. So by, by using the SaaS model, I wanted companies to lean forward instead of saying, hmm, should we do it or not? Is it worth paying for? Um, we wanted them to be running it. We wanted to make lifetime value, customer valuation, just part of the, the daily work stream instead of just that thing that you do maybe once a year because there's a problem. Uh, and we had mixed success with it. There, there, there were some companies that really got into that cadence and would do a lot of refreshes or would, would, or would run it for, for uh, different sectors of the business and for, for different purposes, and others who really did want to make it more project-oriented. So again, it was a, a variety on that basis. Honestly, I, th I think that the SaaS model wasn't quite as successful. Uh, the, the company as a whole was successful, but, but that one piece of it uh, didn't quite take off. There weren't quite as many companies out there that, that were willing or able to make it part of their daily work stream as we had hoped. Yeah, yeah, okay. So can you perhaps join the dots for us? I mean, we talk a lot about transactions and business value on this show, um, and, and obviously there are different methodologies for doing business valuation, but just, just for, I guess, our listeners here, can you join the dots between the kind of work you were doing and how that translates to, to business value? Sure. So the, the, this original company, Zodiac, only did a little bit of that. Uh, for the most part, like I said, it was a MarTech play. But we did work with one private equity firm, uh, a, a mid-sized one. And they said, you know what? We don't really want your platform. We don't want your interactive dashboard. We don't want any of that stuff. We're just thinking about buying this digitally native men's underwear business. And we just want to know what it's worth. So if you can tell us how many customers are they going to acquire, and how long are they going to stay? And how often are they going to buy? And how much are they going to spend when they do? And add all that up, that's the value of the company. So for every deal that they were looking at, and we continue to work with them today, we've worked with them on hundreds and hundreds of projects now, uh, we would give them this bottom-up valuation. And they would use that not just as a way to kind of confirm what they were already thinking, but, but really giving it very, very, very serious thought about whether to buy that business and for how much. So that was kind of almost a, a side gig of what Zodiac was doing. It wasn't until after we sold Zodiac and started the new company, Theta, to really double down on that use case, to move more from MarTech to more, let's call it maybe FinTech, 
but but we did start thinking about it back then. Again, lots of credit to my co-founder and former PhD student, Dan McCarthy, because this idea of customer-based corporate valuation was the heart of his dissertation that I was uh, overseeing. So we were actually really happy to do that. And so while we were doing a lot of this marketing stuff, it just so happened we were refining a lot of the IP and use cases uh, for the second company, even though we really weren't thinking about it at that time. That's cool. Okay. Well, and, and I want to unpack what you do a little bit more in Theta in a moment. So, um, so okay. So, so 2015, you guys have got this this great IP that you know you found this commercial application. You've come out of the blocks quickly. Success is there. You can see it's running. It's great. Um, 2015. That's a pretty short time frame for you to build this business and exit. So, where in that? conversation? Where in that journey did the conversation around exiting come up and how, how did it come about? Things were, were uh, humming along very nicely. Uh, so we actually incorporated, I believe, probably in, uh, in uh, early 16, maybe. Uh, I, I can't even remember the details, but uh, we were moving along, growing the, the business, growing the team, broadening the use cases. Uh, and then it was in uh, um, right around New Year's of 2018, uh, when one of our clients, they're uh, an athletic uh, f- uh, a clothing and footwear company. I mean, maybe your listeners have heard of them. are called um, Nike. Nike. Uh, you can <laughs> look, look that up. Very interesting company. Anyway, they were, they were just a client of ours. Uh, and we were kind of running stuff for them. You know, super interesting company. I don't need to, to tell you that. You know, starting loyalty programs and all kinds of things to tag and track individuals. And instead of just doing it for the fun of it, they wanted to know what's the economic value of it. So we did a, a couple of projects with them, uh, and then it was in kind of you know January, February of 2018 when they said, "We want more," and we said, "Well, that's cool. Yeah, that's great. You know, terrific. Well, we'll hire more engineers and data scientists and customer success people for you." And they said, "No, no, 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 no. We want it all." We said, "Well, you can't have it all. We have all these other clients here." They said, "No, no, no. We want it all, and we're going to make it worth your while." And they did. Uh, so in March of 2018. Uh, they swallowed up all of Zodiac. Uh, I mean, it was uh, on one hand glorious. What a great validation it was for our work. On the other hand, it was it was difficult because we literally had to fire our other clients. Awkward conversations, <laughs> um, but but still, it was it was a it was a great thing. A lot of companies out there that were either uh, hesitant to work with Zodiac, not sure about this lifetime value thing. Um, or the broader things that I do about customer centricity, uh, all of a sudden they're like saying, whoa, this, this is real. You didn't tell us this stuff was real. Uh, and so it was kind of interesting that as we sold the company, so many prospects came out of the woodwork and were saying, sorry, we can't really do anything with you anymore. It all belongs to Nike. Uh, and they did some, some great things with it. I mean, part of it was buying the IP. Uh, part of it was an, a kind of an aqua hire that, the, that this, this amazing team that they brought in, not only to run our kinds of models, but to kind of take charge of lots of other data oriented analytical kinds of things that the Nike has been doing superbly well. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And so, so a little bit of context here for us, if you can. Um, by the time Nike sort of puts this idea of acquisition on the table, can you give us a sense of how big you were, like staff or turnover and stuff like that? We, I think we were about 14 people by then. I, 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 yeah, I, can't, I can't believe I don't remember. You know, 12 to 14 full-time, whole bunch of, of, of part-time and contractors and all that. 
Um, I'm not supposed to talk about the financials. So I'm going to sure. have to leave you guessing on that. Um, no, but, that's fine. Uh, but, but, but still, you know, put it this way. We, we were working out of a uh, shared workspace uh, in New York. You're thinking about getting our own space. So we, we, had, we had really big ambitions uh, in terms of the team, in terms of the business. We we're going to start opening up like separate like verticals. Like let's just have a, a group specifically focused on gaming. Let's have a group specifically focused on telco. So, so we actually were planning on, on growing and expanding. Uh, but, but again, uh, when Nike came to us, uh, there was just, just a, a lot of uh, you know, pressure from the investors to say that this, this is a good deal. Uh, and, and, it, and it really was. There, there, there's no question about it. Uh, uh, and, it, and, it and it just so happened that uh, it actually opened up the opportunity to do something even bigger and better, as it turns out. So once again, looks like it was very planned out on our part, but it was very serendipitous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't want to tread on anything that's confidential here, so pull me up if, if I am. But um, without going into the numbers of your deal, I'm just curious, you know, we, we spoke just offline about companies sometimes being valued on a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA and stuff like that. Was there, a, was there a certain methodology that got used in your case to come up in with a number? In our case, that's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not aware, to, to be honest. I'm, I'm really, truly not holding back on this one. Most of the, the negotiations about the deal were with our, our CEO, Artem Arichin, uh, and our investors and, and, and the folks at Nike. Again, if, for me, it was, you know, on a need-to-know basis. Uh, so, uh, so it was... Uh, Put it this way, um, it was a very, it was a, it was a, it was a generous multiple, uh, and to their credit, uh, they recognized that the, the the value of the business wasn't just in uh, the the earnings and the, the the funnel that we had at the time, but just a, a lot of the potential uh, that we were just starting to unlock, and of course, a lot of it that that would just be you know just so much more valuable for for a company like Nike to be more than just a client, but to really drive the 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 implementation the extensions the the kind of gospel spreading internally yeah yeah and, and it's logical i think when you explain it like that you know nike's value of what they can do with that information with their existing business far outweighs what you know you're probably making in that business from a top or bottom line perspective exactly right. so there's no question yeah. and, and, and let's be honest here too, keeping that that knowledge and technology out of the hands of their competitors probably gave them a little leg up as well. So <laughs> it's fair. It's, it's fair. That it's, and it's not only in terms of their their direct competitors, but to, to their great credit, and Nike was on this, it still is, on this great mission. I keep talking about Nike Direct. And, and basically you look at how their business is fundamentally different today than it was 10 years ago. And they were just selling boxes of shoes to, to Foot Locker and Walmart. And today it's about forming direct relationships with consumers. So, so it's a, just a giant initiative, you know, and, and they're doing just fantastically well over the, 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 the four years since they bought the company. People keep saying, oh, that's because of Zodiac. And well, no, not really. That's because of Nike. Uh, they were on this trajectory and they just kind of swooped or swooshed us up uh, in the process. It was just, it just only natural that not only could we make them more valuable, but they could really, you know, amplify the value that a company like us could bring. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting use case. You talk about that Nike's shifting strategy and and fundamentally trying to get closer to the customer. Um, you know, and I think that's something certainly we see a fair bit of 
um, with people looking to do different types of strategic acquisitions. You know, they're either trying to move up the chain so that they can improve margin or reduce cost, or they're moving down the stream to get closer to the customer and own that relationship and have more influence fundamentally, right? Yeah, and a lot of people talk about that, but but uh, doing it, it with with the depth, with the seriousness, with the financials of of, of Nike uh, to to really really leverage those customer relationships, uh, it was uh, just a, a tremendous credit to them. And, and again, uh, uh, people look at that Nike case study, even though there's not that much of it has has, has been written about. Again, they're trying to keep these these secrets, uh, but people it, it it find it very empowering that if they can do it, then you know why can't we? And and again, for me, that's been just 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 amazing to, again, to not give away any of the specific Nike steps, but to say, yeah, you, you can. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's, I think, you know, d- taking some of the tools and know-how that, that may have in the past only been accessible to large companies who can afford to explore new ideas and new IP or technology um, now being accessible by smaller companies, I think is fantastic. You know, I'd like to think we we champion the cause of of you know small to business, small small to medium business owners. So, um, and and I and I, I imagine Theta does a bit of that, and I, I want to move on to and, and explore that a little bit. But if I can ask, I guess one final question just on Zodiac. Um, once the deal was done. Did you have much involvement going forward? Was there a requirement for you to hang around and help them work on the models? Like, what what did sort of transition look like for you? It was very different for different members of the team. Like I said, it was an aqua hire for for our all of our full time staff. So all the engineers, data scientists, uh, so they all become Nike employees. Uh, so uh, Dan McCarthy and I were were just uh, advisors to Nike. They'd kind of you know uh, uh, call on us when they had specific questions. So we weren't nearly as involved as, as the day-to-day folks. But it was very interesting to see both how Nike leveraged the IP as well as the way that the employees, the, the Zodiac team, kind of almost over time scattered through the Nike organization, some of them taking on uh, quite different roles, few of them still there. Uh, so it, it wasn't just you're the CLV people. It's like you're the smart data analytics people, and we could use you for, for other kinds of things. So it, it for a while there... We were kind of known as like, you know, the Zodiac team within Nike. And it was interesting just hearing from people saying, wait a minute, is that the same Zodiac? Well, yeah. Uh, But then eventually, again, to Nike's credit, they didn't want to have it be this this separate identity. So it was actually quite intentional on their part to kind of dissolve the the Zodiac identity and just make it part of Nike. Uh, So, you know, so over time. Uh, the kinds of questions they'd be asking me, and and their their the focus on lifetime value per se, uh, did did change a bit. And and by the time, uh, it, kind of the the whole uh, non compete, my consulting relationship with them ended. Uh, there really was very little traces of, of Zodiac at that, at that point. That's and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying there about the Zodiac team, and you know, I think the last thing any company wants is to have subcultures and things like that, right? So that it sounds like some smart moves by Nike and no doubt they've done lots of transactions. So they speak from experience, but taking that and being able to disperse them and crossbreed that culture, um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously a critical element if you actually want these integrations to work properly. So that's um, a, a lot, lots of credit to them for that, and still have, have contact with with uh, some of the the senior Nike people who were who were behind the deal, and and it's just at this point we're just friends, and we'll just have casual conversations, and uh, and it, it's just interesting to hear what they're thinking and and, and future steps, but but no longer any kind of a formal relationship. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, okay, so you wrapped up Zodiac and then you started, now it's, is it Theta Equity Partners? Is that the full name? Yeah, so the formal, the formal corporate name is Theta Equity Partners, uh, but that sounds too much like a fund. And so we're just calling ourselves Theta these days. Uh, and and so, so it's a couple of things. Number one, as I mentioned before, we were working with a private equity firm uh, that was that was doing this idea of customer-based corporate valuation. Number two, uh, Dan and my, to some extent, our research portfolio were already exploring other ways of of adapting our models to to an investor community. And number three, uh, Nike again, it's all good. They they put on a fairly restrictive non compete, so we could not deliver individual lifetime value estimates to any company for 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 the next uh, you know whatever it was three or four years. Um, uh, but we could do it in a rolled up way. So we could say, here's what your collection of customers is worth. But that was it. We couldn't say, here's what this one's worth. Here's what that one's worth for any kind of tactical marketing purposes. So, you know, out of necessity, we were kind of uh, pushed into this more aggregated, more investor oriented mode. Uh, and we got Theta off the ground within two months uh, uh, after we, we sold Zodiac to Nike. Uh, we wanted to keep it kind of low key. Again, Dan and I have have day jobs. Uh, we just uh, hired one of my former students uh, from uh, from McKinsey just to kind of run the models. But word spread pretty fast, and and we had just a bunch of folks knocking on our door, uh, and we 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 started uh, hiring and you know doing all the businessy stuff that we thought we were done with with Zodiac. But it's it's actually it's really taking off faster, further, and. Uh, and it's hard to say this because Zodiac was so interesting, but with actually considerably more impact than Zodiac ever had. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's really good. It's, and I'm I'm curious um, if I can ask, and once again, if I'm stepping on um, anything confidential, then then please let me know. But um, so as I understand it, you're looking at customer transactions, you're looking at customer data. And fundamentally, you're coming up with a more accurate assessment or forecast of what people are likely to spend. Is that well, right but so let's, far? Uh, Yes, but let's roll it up even further. Because again, it's a little bit less about what this customer's worth or that one. We are doing some of that now that the Nike non-compete is over. But it's more about this idea of customer-based corporate valuation. PE firm thinking about buying that nutraceutical company. What is it worth? Uh, so it's less about marketing, more about finance. So, so our, our real bread and butter is to work with private equity firms. And we'll work with them uh, primarily on the diligence side, uh, but we've been doing more and more work with their existing portfolio companies. They have this range of different companies and they want to make apples to apples comparisons across them. So instead of saying, well, this one is a SaaS entertainment company and that one is a B2B product company, if we can look at every company through the lens of, I'm going to say it again, customer acquisition, retention, repeat purchase and spend, we can start to make direct comparisons across the portfolio and understand which ones need a little bit more attention. So that's uh, kind of use case number two. And use case number three would be on exit. So we're thinking of spinning this company off 
what's it really worth? Uh, and that's, it's very, very gratifying. Again, that's where we have tremendous impact. There've been a couple of deals where we've seen just, just incredible value that the company or the, the, the private equity firm didn't see. And we're saying, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're leaving hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. Um, we're going to show you where it is and how to justify it. And so we've had, you know, big impacts on transactions, some of which, you know, single transactions would be far more impactful than like all of the work that we did at Zodiac. And so, man, it's, it's, it's just really hard to, 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 to ignore that. It's just, they're just really very, very interesting projects to work on. So we're doing all that. And then in parallel, getting back to some of the corporate stuff now that we can. So it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, where I was sort of going with this too is, you know, how your the ultimate number that you come up with, you know, ABC company is worth X, um, you know, and I was trying to work out, is it a forecast and you're doing a discounted cash flow back to it? Is it a, you know, is that fundamentally the method? That, that it is, that is, it is fundamentally that we are just doing a, you know, a discounted cash flow and net present value. Where so on one hand, it's completely standard. You know, financial valuation textbook one hundred and one. It's just that how we do it from the bottom up instead of the top down. Instead of saying here is the trajectory of revenue, this is what we think revenue is going to be for each of the next five years. We're never modeling revenue directly. We're always deriving revenue from the bottom up through this customer behavior. And like in almost every case, we'll come up with a more accurate picture of what revenue will be, better diagnostic understanding of why revenues are plateauing. Is it because people, you're acquiring fewer, or they're, they're leaving earlier, or they're buying less often? So we can answer those important questions and we can drill down to a more granular level so that we can do the tactical stuff. We can take this whole valuation analysis and then hand it off to the CMO to let them really take action on it. So it, it's terrific. And it's wonderful to see how many people are buying into this bottom-up approach. And, and not, you know, not, not only kind of market analytics folks, but serious Wall Street types who are saying, well, yeah, that's the right way to go. And, and, and that, that kind of validation is, is just extremely rewarding. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I get it. I mean, we do valuations ourselves. And I think one of the reasons we don't use a straight sort of discounted cash flow model in a lot of cases is because we have very little confidence in the forecast being provided to us. <laughs> right. But we have a lot of confidence. That's right. Yeah. And we don't let something like a COVID or a recession get in the way that we can we can factor that in. I mean, uh, uh, during the COVID times, business boomed because not only could we account for it properly, but we could answer these questions. You know, oh, we're having this, this COVID bubble or COVID trough. Is it because of acquisition, retention, repeat purchasers spend? And how long will it last? Uh, and so that, that's been the heart of a lot of the academic research that, that, uh, that we, especially Dan, have been involved in, uh, as well as a lot of the projects that we've been doing. And now with, you know, the possible recession around the corner, same kind of thing. So it's nice to be able to see these kinds of things more carefully uh, and be able to an anticipate uh, not only what the overall impact is going to be, but, but the, the, the tactical implications that arise from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so. I'm, I'm interested in sort of uh, what companies, if you're private companies, I mean, how, 
Going back to this question, I guess, of size, because I think anybody might be listening to this, there'll be a lot of business owners themselves who might be thinking, geez, you know, this is stuff we should be knowing about our own business, but, you know, am I too small for this? Or, you know, I don't suppose there's any upper limit. So, but but is there kind of minimum levels of metrics or information you need? Yeah. Great question. Great question. So, uh, as I said before, it's less about the size of the company. Unless it's really tiny, if it's just a tiny B2B company and you only have, you know, you're selling specialized airline parts and there's only 12 customers in the world, forget it. Uh, but as long as you have, you know, you know, hundreds to low thousands of customers, the, the more important thing is the runway, uh, is that we really want to see, let's say, eight to 12 quarters of data. So because when we run these analyses, we always, always do it on a cohort by cohort basis. So it's very important for us to to look specifically at those customers we acquired in Q1 2016 and do our analysis for them, and then Q2 2016 and so on. And part of our secret sauce is to be able to play connect the dots across the cohorts to be able to see that trajectory. Usually, I hate to say a downward one, usually the cohorts tend to get worse over time. Um, and then to be able to say what the future cohorts are going to be worth even before we acquire them. So we need to have a long enough runway, enough confidence to have enough dots to connect. Uh, because if we look only at the very, very early cohorts, they're going to be highly non-representative, usually too good. Uh, and we can do that analysis and the, the models will look great, but we just wouldn't have a lot of confidence to, to project what the company as a whole is going to look like over the longer run. So as long as we can get that, that, that you know, just enough uh, set of, of cohorts, then we're in pretty good shape. And we work with some, some, some pretty small companies. Uh, again, if we're focusing primarily on, on private equity, uh, in some sense, that's going to be the sweet spot. These companies that are just now getting on the radar of, of, of the PE firms, but at the same time, working with some big giant ones as well, who just happen to be asking the right questions. Yeah, 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 that's great. Um, I'm curious, you you mentioned trends sort of going down, you know, implying maybe customer retention and performance of those businesses is reducing over time? Well, let let me, I just want to correct you on that. Uh, uh, What happens is if we look specifically at cohorts of customers, again, Q1, 2016, Q2, Q3, Q4, Usually what happens is those early cohorts are amazing. And as we start hitting kind of just that, 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 that mainstream middle of the market and then eventually the laggards, each cohort will, will tend to be, it's not a universal rule, but will tend to be a little bit worse than its predecessor. Retention is going to be slightly shorter. Repeat birds are going to be slightly lower. Spend is going to be slightly lower. Again, not universal, but that's the general rule. The, uh, the other side of it, though, is that very often those cohorts will get bigger. Uh, and, and that's the other important part of it. So, you know, though those early ones are amazing, but they're small. Those are the, those kind of, you know, leading edge, those early adopters. When we get into the, the, the heart of the market, we're going to get into some pretty big cohorts. So even if they're slightly worse than their, their predecessors, there's still a lot of value to be brought in. So I'm not trying to paint a gloomy picture by any means. And of course, there are some companies out there that through geographic expansion or expanding their product line or their use cases, um, can actually get the value of the cohorts to increase. So we, we don't rule that out. And again, we can give them some advice about how to do that best. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's fascinating. And you partly answered my question. My next question anyway was, I, I was curious if this was 
partly a function of scale. You know, the, the bigger you get, the bigger the audiences, you know, there's not always going to be the true believers in the mix, right? You're just going to get people who want that part of what you offer and I'm out. So Exactly. No, that that's exactly right. And 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 what you say, it's as you say it and people hear you, it's it's so obvious. So why aren't we accounting for that? Why aren't we measuring that uh, when we're doing valuation or again or, or ongoing co- company analysis? That these kinds of questions and issues sh- should be more rule than exception when it comes to company valuation. And of course, that's the that's the mission we're on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. I'm I'm curious, you know, with all the companies you've looked at over the years um, and, and different sample sizes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there a general theme, I guess, or some common outcomes slash recommendations that come out of your research that you pass on to companies on how they can improve retention or improve performance and things like that? So that wasn't the goal. Again, we were kind of restricted from doing that uh, by Nike, but now it, it's, it's opened up again. So we're getting a, a bit more in, in, into that, that sort of thing. But we have seen patterns of it. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, so some of the patterns are entirely obvious about just the gross overvaluation we were seeing up until early this year. Uh, uh, and now the pendulum swung the other way. I mean, it's, it's a really great example. Um, one of the things that we love to do, most of the work is private, but what we love to do is to look at public companies that happen to put the right kind of data out there and say what they're really worth. So in our published papers, we looked at companies like Dish Network, Sirius XM, Satellite Radio, Wayfair, Overstock. And in every case, the, uh, the valuation that we came up with, uh, if, if you look at how the stock price has moved since we published that work, it's it, in almost every case, it's gone in the direction that we said. In other words, we saw either the presence or the lack of value because um, we're looking at it the right way. So we love to do this with IPOs. Uh, so very often when a company files its S1 statement, they put a lot of good metrics in there. So wonderful case study would be Warby Parker. Now, when they went public back in September, we did one of these bottom-up analyses. They provided some great metrics. And we said that they were grossly overvalued based on their, uh, on, on their IPO. They were worth like $22 a share, opened at 55 and everyone's saying, nah, 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 nah. And we're saying, look, we love Warby. This isn't their fault, but their investors are paying too much. Uh, and you look at where they are today, you know, uh, basically about half of what we said they should be. So the pendulum has swung too far the other way. Uh, and and we've done a kind of a, an update of the Warby analysis and saying, you know what, things aren't nearly as bad as what the market's saying now. So so part of it is is being kind of moderate. Part of it is letting the data guide us and, and not being caught up in any kind of you know trendy thinking uh, and 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 not uh, over exaggerating uh, external effects or anything like that. Just just really focusing purely on transaction data and, and, and having that, that focus, that discipline to kind of screen out all the noise. And there's a lot of noise out there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think you're now on my speed dial list for stock picks. Uh, and uh... Well, but you, but you know, Simon, I, I'm, I'm, it, it's flattering that you raise that, but I do want to emphasize something very, very important, which is we are not stock pickers, okay? I'm a marketing professor. Don't take stock advice from a marketing professor. Our goal <laughs> is to predict revenue, purely revenue. Now, in theory, if I tell you what that revenue trajectory is going to be, boom, the stock price follows. 
but it doesn't always work that way. That's part of the problem is that people overreact and, and so on to, to different things in the marketplace. So even though we, we don't mind being held accountable, um, you'll notice that what, we, what we'll tend to emphasize either in our private deals or in these occasional public statements is more about the kind of quality and quantity of revenue. By the way, here's the stock price, but, but it doesn't always work out, especially in the short term. Yeah, yeah. I guess the stock price, if anything, to allowing for some noise probably justifies or explains, I guess, a little bit of or justifies the data or the outcomes that you've uh, that you've come up with. Yeah. So uh, quick question. You mentioned um, people were overpaying up until probably earlier this year. And, you know, as somebody's out there doing transactions, I'm, I, I was just curious that, you know, I wanted to pick up on that. Do you feel like there's been a little bit of a trend of overvaluation recently? or And, and if so, what do you think has been driving that? Well, now it's, it's, it's undervaluation. You know, now the, uh, at least you know, as, as we speak right here in, in July of 2022, uh, that that in, investors are really hesitant to, to open up their wallets. They're putting excessive pressure uh, on their portfolio companies or their potential investments. And so now we're saying the complete opposite, which is actually there's still a lot of value out there. You know, customer behavior itself hasn't really changed that much. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, the stocks are, are down a tremendous amount, but, you know, retail sales are, are steady to growing. So people out there are still buying stuff. And so if you look at it through the right lens, you see that, again, there's been a, a bit of an, uh, a, quite a bit of, of overreaction. Uh, and so we just want to get people to just look at the customer behavior. Don't look at what, uh, at what other stock pickers are doing. Uh, and that's going to help you make better decisions about what to invest in and make better decisions about which, which kinds of customers to focus on. That, that's where we are. Yeah, and I guess that's interesting. So whether you're whether you're out there looking to buy or sell a business, I mean, really, what are the fundamentals of the business, right? And then you can determine whether it's overpriced or underpriced. But let me but let me double click on that. Of course, I agree completely. But what I'd like to say is that every fundamental of the business ties to customers. That you know, putting aside any kind of non-operational assets. Or, or, or debt or you know capital structure stuff. Every penny you make is coming from a customer buying things. So when we talk about the fundamentals, don't just tell me about the brand and don't just tell me about our expansion into Europe or or, or some you know TikTok thing that we're doing. Tell me about here we go again. I hope that all your listeners will say it with me: customer acquisition, retention, repeat purchase, and spend. That is all I look at. That's all I want you to look at. You know, uh, again, as we speak here, I don't want to date myself, but spending a great deal of time these days thinking about the whole uh, Twitter must legal situation. A lot of noise over there. A lot of the things that that Musk and folks are talking about with kind of the, the bots and all that sort of thing. And I'm saying, who cares? Whatever. You know, if, if we just look at the, 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 the flow of cash and how it relates to the you know, advertisers paying, um, we can get actually a very clean read on, on what's going on there. So, so let's factor out all of that noise, all of the trendy stuff, and just focus on those fundamental aspects of customer behavior. Yeah, excellent. That's brilliant. I'll, I'll put a call through to Elon. I, maybe you guys should be chatting, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure he wants to hear what we have to say. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, um, but I know I'm just I'm cognizant of time. I could chat to you all day about this sort of stuff. But um, you've got a book coming out. Tell us a bit about that. 
I'm so happy to do so. You know, a lot of this work is based on the, these forecasting models, customer lifetime value. And there's a lot of people out there who either still have some hesitation to think about forecasts, say, oh, the future is changing, or, um, uh, or they need kind of a starting point uh, to kind of either be motivated to kind of understand the basic patterns before they plunge right into the models. So the new book is called The Customer Base Audit. Uh, and, uh, and in some sense, it's like a prequel to my other books and to all the lifetime value stuff. Let's just look at all of our historical data, no models, no forecasts. Let's just have a very focused, disciplined look at our existing customer base. And let's look at it through the right lenses to say, what is, it's not so much the, you know, value in terms of, you know, uh, future cash flow type thing, but what are the, what are the fundamentals underneath that? Uh, and how should we look at a business? What are the kinds of, of graphs we should look at? What kinds of inferences should we make from them? Uh, how do we tie that to different kinds of tactical things that a company's doing, like when we acquired a customer or what product they first bought from us? So it, it's kind of a walk before you run kind of thing. And I'm really, really excited about it because I think it's going to do a great job of, of, of starting that conversation uh, and, and, and really giving companies just a, literally a, a template to follow to start seeing these sources of value and to start saying, you know what, uh, let's see if we can project that forward. And that's, again, where all the models come in. So the customer base audit coming soon. Fantastic. Well, uh, well, certainly if you've got links to it, um, I don't know if it'll be on Amazon or wherever, but look, please share, share whatever links you can when they're ready. And we'll certainly, uh, we'll certainly put them up with this, uh, with this episode. So, um, um, but finally, I, I mean, if people want to know more, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? I certainly am. Yeah, I'm, I'm easy to find. Just, you know, Google my name. Uh, uh, or if you want to see some of the, these, these case studies, then go to Theta clv.com which is a lot a lot of stuff posted over there uh but yeah i'm I, i'm i'm out there I'm, i don't believe in in black boxes and and secret sauce and all that i believe more in 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 sharing and getting people to to understand what's going on and you know i have lots of courses and content out there and, and i hope that that people will find it interesting Fantastic. I'm sure they will. I certainly will be checking out more of it myself, as I'm sure some of the people in my team will be. So, um, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've, I've really enjoyed chatting to you. You've shared some great insights, and I know everyone will get a lot of value out of it. Well, Simon, thank you. Great questions, great issues. It, it, it feels terrific, and I'm uh, eager to keep the conversation going. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. 
For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowcell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. Thank <laughs> you.